0: Thank you so much, Noah. Thank you all for joining us today. uh, My name is Erin Fricker. I am the legal director at Project Citizenship and we're going to be talking about the role of quality control at our naturalization workshops. And so the plan for us today is for me to talk about what is Project Citizenship? How is a person eligible for naturalization? What is a workshop? which is how we serve our clients, and what is the role of N-400 quality control? If you choose to volunteer at one of our workshops, what would you be doing specifically? And so Project Citizenship is a nonprofit in Boston. We have two attorneys on staff, so I'm one of them. Um, We started in 2014 and since then have submitted over 9,000 citizenship applications. About 10% of our caseload are disabled clients and the majority of our cases qualify for fee waivers. So they are low income clients, but we have no specific income um, eligibility requirement to receive our services. All of our services are free. um, So the only fee that's charged is the one that the government charges um, for an application fee. The vast majority of our legal services are helping individuals apply for citizenship. So filling out N-400s. But occasionally we get involved in litigation. In 2017, we had a part in a class action about how the government was adjudicating disability waivers for citizenship applicants. And more recently, we are involved in a lawsuit Um, about the prior administration's proposed basic elimination of fee waivers. So to back up a bit, who are our clients? Um, They are eligible for citizenship. Overall, the government estimates that over 9 million people are eligible for citizenship. Um, And approximately 210,000 of these people live in Massachusetts. But each year, only 10% of this number actually succeeds at being sworn in as a US citizen. And we see the problem in this math being that there are so many obstacles to citizenship. Um, first, a, an individual has to read, write, and speak in English in general. Um, the application fee for the average application is $725. It's a 20-page application form that they need to fill out. They need to take a um, US civics and history exam at the interview, and they have to go in person to a government building and be interviewed by a DHS employee, um, a USCIS employee specifically. And that can elicit a lot of fear. Um, often it's unreasonable, but occasionally it is um, it is possible that that a person would be not eligible and could be placed in removal proceedings as a result of having applied for naturalization. So we strive to not put anyone in danger um, by applying to naturalize. It takes a long time to actually complete the process. Um, And in COVID this process has gotten even lengthier. So right now, um, most of our clients are face at least an eight month wait. um, And some of our clients have been waiting 15 months. So our program just focuses exclusively on naturalization and citizenship. So that's all we do. (laughs) We do a lot of it. And we um, really try to build an expertise on the N-400 and the N-600, how how somebody applies um, for citizenship or gets proof of their U.S. citizenship. And we think that it's really important. It's how people are eligible to vote. It's how people prevent being um, deported in the future. Um, It allows people to travel more freely and to apply for more family members. And also apply for um, some government benefits, some loans, some um, government jobs that they wouldn't be eligible for. So we really think naturalization is a really important part of um, making our our community better and stronger. So to give you a sense of of our work, um, Despite COVID we um, and shifting our entire model from in-person workshops to workshops over Zoom, we filed over a thousand applications last year. Um, Just under 700 of those were for fee waivers. Um, Again, about 10% were for disabled clients who were asking for an exception to learning English or civics because of a disability. And we really couldn't do nearly this much work without volunteers like you. Um, We also have a lot of law students and um, corporate groups that are involved in our workshops. So some abbreviations um, we use all the time. So the government agency that we submit all of our applications to is US Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS. They are a branch of the Department of Homeland Security. They adjudicate all green card applications and all citizenship applications. An LPR, that is the type of legal status that our clients have. Um, It is also known as a green card. And um, at the bottom of this slide is an example of what um, one type of green card looks like. And what um, we do at workshops is fill out an N-400 application. On a person's green card, they have an A number or a USCIS number. Um, This number is important to us because it goes on the top of every single page of the N-400 application. And the residence since date, that's their date that they got permanent residence. This is also really important because it determines when they're eligible to apply for naturalization generally. So to be eligible for citizenship, Um, We are only helping adults, so um, a client could become a citizen as a child, um, but then they would be filing a different form with us, not an N-400, they would be filing an N-600 if that is what happened. Um, So we're helping only people who are over 18 years old. They generally have had their green card for five years. There is an exception for individuals who are married and living with a U.S. citizen. They can apply early once they have three years of green card um, status. They have to be physically present in the U.S. for half of that um, three or five years. That's called the statutory period in immigration law. And so um, they have to be physically present for half the statutory period. And can have continuously resided in the US um, for all of the statutory period. And so that means they really have to have been here physically, not, not actually abroad, and then maintained a residency here, like really lived here um, the entire time. They need to have lived in the state that they're filing for at least three months. Um, that's the situation in Massachusetts with the way um, the USCIS districts are. So if somebody has um, very recently moved, we would note and hold their application until they've been um, here for three months. They have to be a person of good moral character, which we will talk about. It's a, a term of art in immigration law that's defined in the statute. And they have to have a basic understanding of English. So reading, writing, and speaking. They have to take a civics exam. So it's a 10 question test. They have to get six correct. And they study from a list of 100 questions. And they have to have an understanding and a willingness to take the oath of allegiance. Um, This we will talk about, but um, some of our clients with dementia may not have an um, understanding of the oath, and and they have to ask for um, an oath waiver. But in general, clients must swear to uphold the US constitution and form of government and and be willing to bear arms on behalf of the United States. An N-400 is the last opportunity immigration has to look at uh, applicants' immigration history. Um, And so that's why it's important that we we screen them for eligibility and we make sure um, there are no red flags. All applicants have to sign their forms, they need a fee or a fee waiver, and we need to know their A number. Um, If a client doesn't have particular information that's requested on the form, it generally won't be rejected, Um, but we are trying to collect as much information as possible to um, help them be successful. When you volunteer at a Zoom workshop, we provide a client info page Word document um, for every client in the workshop and we ask volunteers to note on that page what information is missing, so that we can keep track of it all in one
1: place. Um,
0: Clients can be denied um, their N-400 and um, their are a variety of risks that go along with that. Um, They, some clients can be really disappointed. um, And if a client has paid, they will lose the application fee. So if they didn't qualify for a fee waiver, a denial um, is just a loss of $725. Some more consequential, um, risks are that if they didn't get their green card in a um, proper way, it could be found to be invalid. So they could get a decision that says um, either due to mistake or fraud, your, your green card status was not lawfully obtained. And that's a problem because they, they, it's very difficult to fix that, um, and so they can be deemed ineligible for naturalization um, permanently. Um, the most severe consequence is that um, immigration can initiate removal proceedings um, against somebody and, and put them in immigration court. Um, there is no right to free counsel in immigration court because it is considered civil. Um, and so it's, it can be a really tremendous deal because um, an individual might have to retain counsel at their own expense to defend against removal proceedings. Um, so our clients, um, we, we have a really high approval rating, about 95% of our applications are approved. If they are denied, the most common reasons are that they were not able to be successful um, speaking English or taking the civics exam at the USCIS interview. Occasionally USCIS, um, the client does not disclose all of their um, criminal contact and USCIS requests. And if they don't receive um, appropriate dispositions, they can be denied for that. And sometimes clients um, do not disclose that they may have a tax debt and USCIS can, can deny if they um, know that they applicant owes taxes. they have not entered into a payment plan. Um, So in the time of COVID, this is what our workshops look like. Um, We used to host all of our workshops in person, either at our office, at um, community centers, libraries, or at law firms. Um, And now we do smaller workshops over Zoom, every week. Um, and so we are in need of a lot of um, volunteers to staff these Zoom workshops each week. Um, so how a workshop works is um, a staff member of Project Citizenship has screened the applicant for basic eligibility. They we, When we think that a client um, is eligible, we sign them up for a workshop and at the workshop an application assistance volunteer completes the N-400 with the applicant over Zoom, or if the client is not able to access Zoom over the phone. Um, These volunteers are non-attorneys. After the application assistance um, person is done, that is in an individual breakout room so um, the workshop it we have we host um, generally 20 clients and we have 20 application assistance volunteers and we split them up into individual breakout rooms after the application is complete we ask a quality control volunteer who is an attorney to enter the breakout room with the client and go over the application. So review the N-400, review the client info page, and um, do quality control on the application. After a workshop, um, a member of our legal team, so me or the other attorney at Project Citizenship reviews each application, and the applicant is emailed a copy of their N-400, a list of any missing documents or information that we need all the signature pages that they need to sign and study materials for the civics test. And once we get everything back, we mail the application to immigration. So all of our volunteers in this virtual model, um, we ask that they have access to Adobe Reader And that they have a Dropbox account. Um, That is how we manage the tech side of our workshops. And so an application assistant volunteer will transfer, using um, the chat function in Zoom, um, the edited documents. So the N-400, we ask that they don't enter the client's A number or their social security number for security purposes, the client info page, and any addenda that they might have prepared. And so we ask the quality control attorney to note anything you see um, on the form that needs to be brought to our attention. And then at the end of the appointment, once you're done reviewing the application, you would upload to the client's folder, the client info page with the application assistance comments and the quality control attorney's comments, the final N-400 and any agenda.
1: So as a quality control volunteer,
0: you will be the only attorney that the applicant talks to that day. Um, So it's really important for um, you to know that the client may have never spoken to an attorney before. They may be intimidated by the fact that they're talking to an attorney right now. Um, And so please let the client know that um, you are available to answer questions um, and that you're there to help make sure that this form and is completed to the best of our ability and that you are just trying to gather information Um, Please review any notes that the application assistance person has made, and if some things, as we go through this training, you'll learn um, will not be a big deal, Um, and some things you might identify that they did not identify at all, and so please note them so that um, when our team is reviewing it, it, we can um, pinpoint these issues more readily. I see a question um, about whether the Dropbox account needs to be a paid version. It does not. Um, You can use a free Dropbox account. Um, So we have um, resources that are available to you that we send along links to in the calendar invitation when you volunteer for um, one of our workshops. So we have an annotated N-400, so a 20-page form that that identifies exactly what information needs to go in each section. We have a quality control checklist of um, which we used to distribute physically um, so that clients or volunteers who are starting out could go over um, all the information that we're asking (laughs) that um, that are completed on N400s. We have a preparer memo which just note some dates, Um, so five years ago from today, (laughs) three years ago from today, and we'll explain, um, there's a couple other dates that might be relevant for particular clients, Um, how, when they were born, if for them to be 55 or 60 or 65 today. Um, So some dates of note. We have addenda that are formatted for, for our most frequently used Um, addenda, frequently used questions. So we have an addenda um, for more than four children. So for children's number five and six, there's a preset addenda for a child. Um, If people had many spouses or more residents or um, schools, um, we have addenda that are preset for those circumstances. And there are usually three project, project Citizenship staff members in the Zoom workshop um, on the day of the workshop. So There's plenty of people to go into various breakout rooms and answer questions if you ask for help. Um, so at a workshop, the first thing to do would be to read the notes on the client info page to just get a heads up about what the person before you um, saw as missing or issues to be explored. Um, And please try to make it clear to the client what they need to do if there's missing information like they don't have their complete travel history or um, they don't have all their children's residential addresses, um, that that's information that they're gonna need to find and get back to us and what we will do for them um, if there are um, any documents that we need to review that we haven't yet. Um, Please ask for help and let a Project Citizenship staff member know if you are paired with a client in the breakout room that you don't think speaks enough English to get through um, your interview of them about this form. Um, If they're not eligible for a fee waiver, we really want to advise them to wait and and file when they have more English. Um, We can connect clients um, to ESL classes. Um, We have several to recommend to, clients. And so we're happy to make those um, referrals if needed. Um, If they are qualified for a fee waiver, we just want to warn them and have them understand that their application might be denied for lack of English.
1: Um, Sometimes
0: family members or helpers, friends, um, social workers might be on the phone or on the Zoom with a client. Um, it's really important that unless the applicant is exempt or qualifies for a disability waiver, in which case they can do the process in their native language, um, that the applicant answer the questions for themselves and that this is a practice for the immigration interview that, that they will have to get through on their own um, unless they an ex- exception applies. So this is what the beginning of the application actually looks like. The N-400. It asks for how the client is eligible. Um, And so in general, we're either checking the box A or box B. Um, Individuals are permitted to file 90 days before um, their fifth year anniversary or their um, third year anniversary. Um, if they've only had their green card for three years, then we would check B. Um, if they've had their green card for five years, we would check A. Um, and the reason is eligibility based on a spouse um, requires that the person be married. So if, if they've had their green card over five years, um, we wanna check box A in case um, The spouse were to die or they were to get divorced um, because they would not be eligible on box B because they must remain married to the U.S. citizen.
1: If they're applying based on marriage,
0: um, an applicant has to do all three things. So they have to have been married for three years, um, they have to have had their permanent residence for three years, and they have to have been living um, with their U.S. citizen spouse, and that spouse has citizenship for all three years. I see a question about um, if a volunteer has language skills. Um, please let us know that. Um, and we would love to pair you with uh, an exempt or um, disabled client who has a similar la- the same language. Um, we have a lot of clients that speak Spanish and a lot of clients that speak Haitian Creole. Those are our two biggest. Um, we do serve clients who speak Arabic with some frequency. Um, and then we have, we have clients from dozens and dozens of countries. So um, we, we occasionally need a lot of other languages. So we would love to um, match volunteers with um, clients with the same language. Um, The next section of the application asks um, about the person's legal name and then their name as it appears on their green card. So often this is the same, but in some cases it's different. Often um, green cards leave off their people's middle names. They just use middle initials. Um, And so you just want to follow that. (laughs) We, We want immigration to be able to pair this application along with their exact Green card um, that's in their system. For legal name, we want to go off of people's birth certificates or driver's license or passports. We want to list any um, nickname or alias or other name that anybody's ever used. So um, in addition to any maiden name, we, we want to know if they've ever written any other name down anywhere. Um, Naturalization is an opportunity to change one's name without a separate legal proceeding. And so this question is on the form. It doesn't matter to us if clients want to change their name or not. Um, It's entirely up to them. The only difference is that a federal judge actually has to do the name change. So they would not be naturalized at an administrative oath ceremony at USCIS, if they are asking for a name change, they would be waiting for a judicial ceremony, which um, right now is taking place uh, probably once a month. Um, So in part two, we're asking the quality control volunteer to fill in the applicant's social security number. We do not use online account numbers, Um, USCIS does not accept fee waivers electronically. And so we, because 70% of our clients are filing for fee waivers, we file 100% of our applications on paper. The application asks for date of birth and the date of the applicant became an LPR. That information will be on the client's green card. We ask for clients to send us a copy of their green card before their appointment. And so if we have it, it should be in their workshop folder that you will have a link to. Um, But please just verify, because green cards can be wrong (laughs) Um, sometimes, and we want to give the correct information. Country of birth is on the green card as well, Um, and country of citizenship or nationality is usually the same as the country of birth, but not always. Sometimes refugees um, are born in one country but have a different nationality. client's date of birth was wrong or um anything else was wrong on the green card we would want to add a general addendum just explaining that um that the information's wrong and we would want the client to provide documentation to show what what is the correct information so a copy of their birth certificate if their date of birth is wrong for example I've been referring to N648s, our medical disability waivers. Um, If a client is eligible for one, um, then we do not schedule them for an appointment until we think that we have a sufficient N648 signed by their doctor that USCIS will accept. And so we do a lot of legwork on the front end um, to get that form filled out correctly by applicants physicians. Um, and so whether we have an N648 or not dictates the answer to question 12.
1: Um,
0: there, question 13 lays out the exemptions for the language exemptions for the naturalization test. So if a person is 50 and has had their green card for 20 years, they can do the entire process in their native language, including taking the civics exam. If a person is 55 and has had their green card for 15 years, um, the same is true. And if they're 65 and have had their green card for 20 years, that is true and they get to take a simplified civics exam. So in that situation, they study the easiest 20 questions um, and and take and are asked 10 of them and they have to get six correct. So if a client um, doesn't fall into any of these categories and says, I need to do this process in Spanish, um, they need an N648 and if they don't have one already, please stop the appointment and (laughs) ask for help. because we need to start the process with the N648 with their doctor, which can at times take months. Um, And we don't want to waste your and the client's time filling out the N400 when we kind of need to go back to square one and see if they have a disability that they've been diagnosed with that um, makes it so that they're unable to learn um, English or civics. So, It's important to note that that a language exemption does not exempt the person from civics, so they're still going to have to study um, US history and government and take the 10 question test. The next part of the application asks about contact information. Um, Please make sure we have accurate um, phone number, email address, Um, and mailing address for the client. That is how both we and USCIS is going to contact them. So we need good information on this section. We need the client to have lived in the state that they're residing in for the last three months. So the vast majority of our applicants are from Massachusetts, um, but occasionally we help people in Rhode Island or New Hampshire. Um, they just have to have lived in the state where they're at for the last three months. Um, on the residence history, we're just going back for the statutory period. So um, we don't need to outline everywhere they've lived since they got their green card. We just need needed um, for the last either three or five years. And Approximate dates are enough so um, winter 2016 that's fine we don't need to know the exact date. Um, Even years and are fine, Um, but we do want to go back for the statutory period. Um, Section six asks about. The person's parents, whether they were married um, and whether they are a citizen, and if so, when they naturalized. Um, So we don't need to fill out anything on this section unless they have a citizen parent. Um, And the point of the section is to figure out is for USCIS to figure out has the person already derived or acquired citizenship because of the naturalization of their parents while they were under 18. So this doesn't apply to the vast majority of our clients, Um, but if it does we can help them file an N600 form, Um, but we would want to stop the appointment because if if this applies because we don't want to waste your and the client's time filling out the wrong form. So um, a person may have derived or acquired if they had their green card while they were under 18 and were living with a U.S. citizen parent. Um, The next session asks about um, biographic information, so it asks about the person's height and weight and eye color and hair color. Um, It asks about their ethnicity and their race. So this is just information that, that USCIS is collecting now and then usually collects again at a biometrics appointment. Part eight is about their employment or schools for the last three or five years. So again, it's just um, the statutory period. Um, You can list self-employed, unemployed, retired. Um, They just want an accounting of what, what the client has done
1: the statutory period.
0: Um, Please don't worry about the exact address. So if a a lot of our clients drive for Uber or Lyft, um, we can just put the company name. We don't have to list whatever their corporate
1: headquarters are.
0: Part nine asks for the person's travel history. Um, so this is about physical presence um, and to some extent <laughs> continuous residence. Um, so the total number of days has to be less than 912 if the person is applying based on five years. And it has to be less than 547 if the person is um, applying based on three years. And so what we're trying to get the applicant is a complete Record of their trips. It is um, the burden of the applicant to prove that they're eligible for naturalization. And so they have to disclose when when they were gone. Some clients um, can say, you know, I traveled with my passport. The government knows when I left and when I came back. Um, And that may be true. But on this particular application, USCIS is requiring the applicant to disclose their complete travel history. There is an I-94, there is a a Customs and Border Patrol website that can do a search if the client has their passport number and of of all the times they've entered and exited, um, I would say it is 60% successful. (laughs) It definitely doesn't, um, it is not complete in everyone's case. But it can be helpful. Um, please try to do as much as you possibly can in this section. So if the client has uh, a passport with a bunch of stamps, um, if they can hold it up to the Zoom camera, if, you can, if they can read it out to you, a list of um, trips. We try to get clients complete travel histories if they disclose that screening. A lot of it. Um, but please try to make as much progress as you can if if you have clients with a lot of travel history. Um, there's date counters on um, available on the internet that um, that can help with the number of days outside the US to just enter in the entry and exit dates. Um, It can, overall, it can just be really hard for us to get in touch with our clients again um, after workshops for any meaningful amount of time. Um, And so while having them at the workshop, we really want to try to collect as much information as possible. So if they can call or text their sister while on the Zoom with you to verify where they worked or where they lived or when they took that trip, um, that would be really helpful to us instead of just trying to follow up and get that information um, in the
1: subsequent weeks.
0: Um, abs- an absence of more than one year definitively breaks continuous residence um, for naturalization purposes. And so if you have a client who, says, who discloses that they were gone for more than a year in the statutory period, then please stop the appointment. They're not eligible. Um, ask project citizenship staff for help. And and we will um, verify and and, um, and back you up in in sending the client home and telling them when they can contact us in the future if they want to pursue naturalization. If they've been gone more than six months, but less than a year, then there's a rebuttable presumption. Um, And so we try to identify these people before workshops and send them, information about what evidence they would need to collect to rebut the presumption that they broke their continuous residence. We have clients in this circumstance that do successfully naturalize, um, but we do want to warn them about the risk of being denied um, and the fact that that it is on them to provide evidence um, that they maintain their continuous residence.
1: Um, The next section asks about
0: the person's marital history. So we need to find out what is their marital status. Um, If they are living separately, that doesn't mean they are separated unless they actually have a legal separation. (coughs) We need to know how many times they've been married and then their current spouse's information and their prior spouse's information. If it asks for, the the form asks for the current spouse's immigration status, and we try to frame this um, to factually report this in a way other than undocumented or entered without inspection. So if the person um, has TPS, we would say that if they have applied for um, green card, we would call them an adjustment applicant. Um, we may also call them a non-resident or a resident of um, whatever country they have national, uh, have citizenship. Um, we have never heard of immigration mining and 400 applications to conduct enforcement on the spouses of of naturalization applicants. But um, nonetheless, (laughs) this is, um, we would try to describe their their legal status in a way um,
1: that doesn't involve reporting them as undocumented.
0: Um, The application asks for marriage start and end dates. And so those are really important um, because USCIS um, wants to make sure that people are in legally valid marriages. And so they look to see if marriages overlap and if somebody got their green card based on marriages that would, um, that was not legally valid, then that could invalidate their green card. Um, some clients have been living separately from spouses for years and have no idea. Um, where the spouse lives, and that's okay. We can write unknown for any information. Um, But if a client is applying based on three years that they are married to a US citizen, then they need to be living with that US citizen spouse. Um, And and if they're not, then they're not eligible to apply for naturalization yet. one thing I will mention, in addition to asking about the applicant's current spouse and prior spouse, it also asks for the applicant's current spouse's marital history. So, a lot of times clients say, "I have no idea what my husband's ex-wife's date of birthday is, date of birth is, or um, when they got married." Um, but we push clients to try to figure out that information to ask their spouse about their complete marital history um, for the purposes of this form.
1: Children, the form
0: asks for um, every child to be listed on the form. So this includes adult kids, kids born abroad, kids living abroad, uh, adopted children, children who have died, and current stepchildren, so children of their current spouse, even if they've never lived with them, um, need to be listed on the form. And for both spouses and kids, the the address you you can write lives with me um, instead of writing the whole address out, if that's applicable. The form has space for four children, so five or more require a child addendum. And the form also asks for um, uh, the child's A number if they have one. So um, if they were born in the US, then they're a US citizen. If they have an A number, um, they generally will have green card status. Um, And if they don't, have a green card um, and they weren't born in the US, we would like to understand how the child got here um, because it is a good moral character issue um, if the applicant was involved in smuggling. Um, Child uh, support is also a good moral character issue. Um, and specifically willful failure to support dependents is not permitted It makes a person lack good moral character. Um, so it there doesn't need to be a formal child support order in place that a person is complying with. Um, and if a person is unable to support their dependents because they're unemployed, um, that is also okay. But we want to know in general for if the applicant is living separately from their children, uh, we want to ask the question, are you supporting those children? Um, We have had clients approved who have had some sort of child support arrears that they owe as long as they are making payments towards um, their child support debt. That is fine. Um, And we would just add an addendum to explain that if that were the scenario. I see another question um, about whether a volunteer is considered to establish an attorney-client relationship with the applicant. Um, So, no, we ask all of our volunteers to sign um, an agreement when they ag- agree to participate in a workshop that these clients are our clients, um, the clients of Project Citizenship and not individual volunteers' clients. Um, and we ask volunteers to also um, keep all information that they learn during a workshop confidential and um, and ask Project Citizenship if they, um, are going to disclose any information about who they interact at the workshop or or, um, information they learn at the workshop.
1: Um,
0: And I have another question about um, attorneys who are not licensed yet. So we are happy to host um, any volunteers as application assistants. Um, in the application assistance role um, before individuals are licensed. We ask that for quality control only licensed um, attorneys volunteer in that role, but we have a lot of um, law students and um, and people working at all sorts of companies who um, who don't have any connection to the law. who routinely volunteer as um, application assistants and get plenty of interaction with clients and, and help us out enormously. Um, so part 12 of the application is the um, many, many questions to for help USCIS examine whether a person is a person of good moral character. Um, and so, the goal for quality control is to make sure there are addenda an explaining any and all yes answers in this part. Um, the application assistant has may have prepared an addenda, um, and we would ask that you look that over and um, make any edits if you um, think it's necessary. This part 12 has a lot of legalese. So, um, We encourage volunteers to break down these questions into more understandable terms. Um, Good moral character in general, the the person to be eligible for citizenship needs to have been a person of good moral character in the statutory period. So they may have um, criminal convictions outside the statutory period that um, we need to report, but do not concern us um, for the purposes of this moral character assessment. Um, You'll see in these questions, there's um, a focus on whether the person has committed any unlawful acts. So um, this doesn't require a conviction and it may not be a specific ground of removability, um, but USCIS is looking at the, nature and magnitude of the act, any mitigating or favorable factors. And so that's why it is important for us to explain yes answers with addenda so that USCIS can see the, the full picture of why the person is answering yes. Um, so the first few questions in this part ask about false claims to US citizenship or voting. Um, So there's no place in Massachusetts that allows non-citizens to vote. So if an applicant voted, please um, stop the application and ask for help so that um, we, a staff member can come into the breakout room and talk to the client about this situation. Um, And if you can write a detailed note on the client info page about what the applicant reported to you um, about their voting that will be helpful to us. If a client registered to vote but didn't vote, um, they have to unregister before they apply for citizenship and
1: we can help them do that. Um,
0: There is a question on the form about have they ever been declared legally incompetent or confined to a mental institution? Um, And so both of these things are asking for circumstances where there was judicial action. And so if a client um, says that they voluntarily were hospitalized for depression, um, that doesn't qualify if there was no judicial action. Um, it is not a bar to approval if, if the answer is yes. We just wanna explain um, this question specifically is, trying to get at whether the person is competent to take the oath of allegiance. And so um, they may just need an oath waiver uh, if if this is the case, if they're still legally incompetent.
1: The form asks about taxes,
0: um, whether they owe any taxes, if they've ever not filed a a tax form. And so, if a person owes taxes, we can't file the application until they are on a payment plan with the IRS and are making payments. They are going to actually have to show proof of those payments um, to USCIS. If they've ever not filed a tax return because they made too much, too little money in a year, that's fine. The answer is yes. We attach an addendum which explains I didn't file taxes because I didn't meet the threshold. And that should be no issue.
1: The form asks about memberships
0: and organizations. And sometimes clients report church memberships or school groups that they've been in um, sometimes alumni associations. um, And that's fine religious groups. um, If they disclose any involvement with the Communist Party, a totalitarian party or a terrorist organization, um, we want to know about that. Um, Any of those would require an because it's a separate question in part number 10. Um, Otherwise, if they are just school groups, you would fill out the the chart in in
1: question nine. There are questions
0: about military and police units, weapons training. Um, Sometimes those questions are, are yes, and we just need to fill out an addendum and explain that a person was in the military in the foreign country or here and that they had weapons training um, as a part of that. If the person was previously in removal proceedings, um, if it is not noted on the client info page, that means we didn't know that. And so um, please let project citizenship staff know um, so that we can make sure that they're answering those questions accurately. Um, Some of our clients receive military training um, as a part of ROTC in college, and that's fine.
1: We just need to disclose it.
0: Um, The Form asks a lot of questions about a client's criminal contact. So they ask about citations, and that includes moving violations and speeding tickets. So if the person has ever gotten uh, a speeding ticket or a traffic ticket, we need to disclose that. We ask, um, we screen clients for these issues before the workshop, and so that you may get a client who has um, criminal dispositions or dockets in their client folder already. So those have been pre-reviewed by somebody in Project Citizenship's legal team and approved for scheduling. So we think that it has no impact on their eligibility for naturalization. If a client discloses new crime, um, please write that down on the client info page and alert Project
1: Citizenship staff.
0: Um so if if a client has crimes, you're just gonna fill out this chart um, at at the bottom of the page about um, and you're gonna do it off the disposition that we have. So um, what was the charge, what was the date, where did it happen, and then what happened? And as far as what happened goes, um, what we're interested in is like, was it a conviction or not? And so, For immigration law, a conviction in Massachusetts is going to be a guilty plea, a guilty finding, it's also going to be continued without a finding, is a conviction for immigration purposes um, because it involves the admission of sufficient facts and
1: a restraint on the person's liberty. we are going to
0: send copies of criminal dispositions that we have with the client's immigration application, um, and they must take the certified dockets to the interview. If a client has um, speeding tickets, we would recommend that they get a copy of their driving record and bring that to the interview. Um, So there are convictions that may make a person removable or ineligible and so these are what we keep in mind um, and try to screen for um, so that nobody gets registered for a workshop who has uh, a drug conviction that would make them removable or ineligible. Um, But if you have clients who are disclosing for the first time a crime um, that falls into one of these categories that was a conviction, um, we would definitely want to know about that. We need for the client to get their docket to show us and um, USCIS exactly what happened. And um, we may ultimately recommend that they not apply if um, it, it would make them ineligible or removable from the US. Um, there are some questions about whether a person has ever given any information that was false, fraudulent, or misleading to a US government official, or lied to a US government official to gain entry or an immigration benefit in the United States. And so if the client answers yes, we want an addendum explaining what happened, when, where, (laughs) why um, did they do this to make sure it still makes sense for them to file. Um, In question 30, there's still more (laughs) questions about um, people's good moral character. So um, it asks if the person's ever been a habitual drunkard and a prostitute or procured anyone for prostitution. It asks about um, sold or smuggling drugs, um, whether they've been married for an immigration benefit, whether they've smuggled somebody and child support, like whether they support their dependents. So if the client answers yes to any of these, we want to understand if there are um, criminal records that we don't have, um, this is just another point for us to to find them um, and make sure we're answering both kind of categories of questions consistently and that we're explaining circumstances where there are any
1: guesses. Um,
0: overall, as I said at the beginning, um, applying for naturalization is the last chance for USCIS to see how did look at this person's immigration history. And so if the person has ever been in removal proceedings, we wanna know that and understand what happened. Um, a lot of our clients got their green cards in removal proceedings, so it may not um, call into question anything because they they got their green card through cancellation of removal or asylum, um, and and an immigration judge granted it. Um, but there are other clients who we may not know that they were in removal proceedings until they answer one of these questions, yes, and then we need to do some digging and make sure we understand their um, storyline and that um, there aren't red flags. If a client got their green card through a marriage and that marriage ended very quickly, that is a red flag for USCIS, They um, they may investigate whether that was a bona fide marriage or if the marriage was for immigration purposes only. And so we want to, to whatever extent we can, identify these issues proactively and ask the client about them and have a conversation about whether they want to pursue an application. Um, There is a, EOIR um, is the agency where the immigration courts are. Um, There is an EOIR portal where we can enter a client's a number and um, find out if they've been in removal proceedings, some basic facts about those removal proceedings. So um, that is where we look to confirm um, if a client what d- says that they were granted asylum by an immigration judge, that's a place that we could verify it. Um, I've worked on some examples where USCIS would would find that a person's green card was invalid. Um, so if, if a child got a green card um, based on their unmarried child status, when in fact on the N-400, they disclosed that they were married at the time that they had their green card, that would be problem um, and would likely result in a naturalization denial that says you were not eligible for your green card when you received it um sometimes uscis calls um sometimes is always looking for marriage fraud and sometimes um will find kind of like double marriage fraud schemes where there are is a couple together um and they divorce and marry us citizen spouses and then divorce and remarry one another so that's another example if a client um, got their green card as an asylee um, where they got their, they were the principal asylee. Um, it can be helpful to make sure that any derivatives on their application, any spouse or ch- minor children um, also got their green cards or, or their citizenship um, because in this weird <laughs> um, immigration law world, If a principal asylee naturalizes before a derivative gets their green card, the derivative has to start from scratch, um, which is a huge pain for that derivative. So this has only come up a couple of times, but um, it's not something everybody understands um, when they get asylee status that um, their derivatives should also make progress along um, this continuum and try to get um, green card before the principal naturalizes. Um, Selective service is, uh, are some questions on the application about selective service. So this is an obligation that all males have um, who are between 18 and 26. There is a helpful website where we can verify um, when, if people were registered, the application asks um, for the number And that's where we can obtain that is from the Selective Service website. So if the client's under 26 and they haven't registered, we please note it on the client info page because we will help them register. (laughs) Um, If they're between 26 and 31, we do have a Selective Service Addendum um, that is pre-completed that just says, I didn't know about select the obligation to register for selective service. And if I had known, I would have registered, which is the circumstance of like 99% of our clients. Usually if a client went to high school in the United States, they did register. Um, usually guidance counselors make that happen. Um, but if they were here when they between 18 and 26 and they didn't go to high school here, it is 50-50 in my experience whether the person knew about their obligation to register. Um, undocumented people have, are supposed to register. So um, it's usually people who are just um, in the US as like a F-1 student who don't have the obligation to register.
1: Um, and
0: let's see. the last um, portion of the questions are about the oath of allegiance. So the oath itself is written on page 20, and um, but the last five questions of the form ask about whether the person um, understands the oath and is willing to take it. And so if they aren't for some reason, we need an addendum and evidence to back it up. So if they are Jehovah's Witness, and that's why they object the um, obligation to bear arms, that's fine. We need either a signed statement from the client explaining their objection um, or sometimes clients get us a um, letter from their pastor um, or a church elder explaining their objection. The final part of the form is about signatures and interpreters. Um, and. So we don't complete the interpreter information unless the client was exempt because of their age and length of their green card status, or they have a medical disability waiver. And we don't complete parts um, 15 to 18, that's actually for USCIS at the interview to do. Um, And so once you get to the oath of allegiance section, you're you're done. Um, After the workshop, You upload all the documents to the client's Dropbox folder. And um, somebody from our legal team reviews it. We collect any missing documents or information and signatures from the applicant. And then we mail the whole thing to USCIS. We track the case as it goes through the process. um, And we do submit service requests to USCIS if the case falls behind. in how they're processing applications. So thank you so much for your attention and uh, interest in, in potentially volunteering for one of our workshops. I will make sure Noah and the BBA have um, copies of this presentation to distribute, as well as the link where you can volunteer for an upcoming workshop if you are interested.
1: So thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you so much as well for speaking. And we do have a few minutes left. There are some questions left in the Q&A um, that we can go through if you would like to. Sure. I can, um, yeah, I, I can read I them out.
0: Some of them as we went, um, let me see.
1: Yeah, I can um read them out to you actually, um, if that works. In the QA function?
0: Yep. So, uh, oh, I see.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Sorry, I was reading the chat. So, yeah. No worries. Yes, no worries. Um, so, how often does the denial of naturalization result in the beginning of removal proceedings? So, this is a great question. Um, it's not something that USCIS is very public about with their information. Um, It varies depending on the administration and their particular policies about when they initiate a notice to appear. Um, So I don't have a great answer for you in terms of like there's not published data as far as I know about this. Um, It is rather rare, um, anecdotally, but I I used to, anecdotally from the advocate side where we're submitting this volume, I used to work at USCIS and it definitely does happen um, that, that fraud is discovered or um, uh, person's removal, removability is discovered through their criminal record through a naturalization application or the fact that they got um, their green card inappropriately is discovered at Let's see, uh, does the website about travel include Canada? Um, so I don't think it does. Um, and so we do wanna ask about trips to Canada um, and even though it may not be indicated on the CVP travel website. So if we, if the client can get us um, dates that they went to Canada and Mexico for that matter, um, that may not be reflected on the, the CVP I-94 history. um there's a question about is the attorney volunteer required to carry individual malpractice insurance no we have malpractice insurance project citizenship does for our volunteers so we have coverage that includes both our staff and and the volunteers that volunteer with us
1: Let's
0: see. Um, Yeah, and I think I answered the the law graduate question. We would ask you to volunteer as an application assistance um, until you get a license. And I will definitely make these slides available to
1: everyone. Yes, and thank you again so much, Erin, for the presentation and thank you all for attending and then I will make sure that the slides go to everyone through email and enjoy the rest of your day and look forward to seeing more of your future BPA programs. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you.